Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest as always. He is the author of The Rebellious Recovery, Transform Your Adversity into Adventure. He is a Paralympic athlete, entrepreneur, and ambassador for spinal cord injury. Welcome to the show, Aaron Baker. How are you doing today? Doing well, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, your book is fresh off the print here. Uh, you have got to be excited about this book. Uh, I, I dove into it a, a little bit, and it is just an amazing story of adversity and how you've really transformed yourself in from an event that most people really don't recover from. You were, what, given a one in a million chance to, to actually move again or to feed yourself? Uh, just kind of walk us through the bit of this process so far and, and you decided to write about it. Well, thank you. Yes, you're absolutely right. I am thrilled. This has been a long time coming, over two decades in the making. Wow. Uh, I've I've um, blogged and chronicled some of the process just in my own journal entries and, and things. And I've been asked uh, to go into more detail about the process, about some of the things I've been able to, to set and achieve uh, along the way. Um, things like feeding myself again, uh, which were once thought uh, to be impossible. Um, but I have. Here I am. I have my cereal right here. Like <laughs> nice. and I'm feeding myself <laughs> and I've done done some other things along the way um, top line I pedaled a bicycle across the country twice twice right yep post post injury wow. as a part Jeez. of my as a part of my recovery now um, you were a full quadriplegic uh, correct paralyzed from the chin down correct yes uh, just to kind of give some some background some context I was a professional athlete. I yeah. was racing motorsports at the time, chasing a dream. Nice. I wanted to be a champion on a motorcycle. Now you and started young with this, didn't you? Like very the three years year. old. How, yeah. how how young? Three years old. Santa Claus oh. brought me a motorcycle. Nice with training wheels. <laughs> and so I, I started very young. Uh, it, it was became a passion. I loved the little motorcycle. I loved the freedom that it gave me, the sense of control that I had right. over a, uh, a machine like that. And although I was influenced in many different areas growing up, I feel very fortunate that I was raised in a beautiful part of the world, Carmel, California, on the Central okay. Coast. Yep. My mother raised my sister and me uh, in that eclectic little town influenced us with music and culture and travel and all the other sports but it was still that little two that two-wheeler that motorcycle that had my heart at a very young age and so right. i chased it i followed yeah. that dream and you know accidents happen i'd had accidents along the way i'd fallen from great heights i'd broken well, bones let's let's go into that like <laughs> okay. motocross is this insane amazing sport like you are launching yourself off ramps and like how high can you get off these jumps? You know, hundreds of feet through the air. Um, but so if you, know, you fall, you're going to break something from that height, correct? 
most well you're gonna injury is inevitable yes yeah but what that taught me early david was Mm -hmm. calculated risk right right i'm doing that with my daughter now right she's two (laughs) years old and i see her propensity for risk taking and it's not to to shelter from that or to not take risk it's it's to take risks safely yes yeah because life as we know is inherently dangerous we can get hurt doing any number of things So I learned this very early on to be methodical about, you know, any type of high risk endeavor. And I, I attribute that to the motorcycle. I attribute my awareness uh, and risk assessment to my ability to, to, uh, to ride early. Yeah. Know, I still move that way. That's how I, I move through life with this high level injury is some of the fundamentals that I learned from a motorcycle. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, there's also just the sensations you get from, from riding a motorbike. Like you've got the, the speed, the power, and obviously the, the feeling of sensation of flying, basically you're, you're in the air, you're doing these tricks and, and landing it. It's funny you, you bring that up sensation. Um, absolutely. Every single sensation is, is completely activated went on a motorcycle. Yes. And there was actually something that I, I followed and learned early on from a a riding coach named Dr. Paul feeds. He called it sensation conditioning. And my riding coach says the only difference between you and the fastest rider in the world is the six inches between your ears. It's what you think and feel. The only difference between me and that guy is he knows what it feels like to go at those speeds, to maintain and to take those risks safely, consistently. And so, I mean, that's fundamental to to how I live today. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we wanted to geek out a little more about that, uh, you're, you're paralyzed chin down, but this the sensation part of speed and... A movement is still active. It's that inner ear vestibular system. Mm. And uh, yeah, if we dive into it later, I, I think that is such a huge part that could be integrated into a lot of uh, therapy programs with spinal cord injuries, uh, depending if that pathway is still there. But that is the fastest most highly myelinated pathway in the human nervous system is our vestibular ocular and our vestibular spinal pathway. Mm. And uh, it's still intact uh, between the ears, basically, and down. So just having that honed throughout the years, too, with your motocross uh, might be one reason that that uh, uh, you were able to, to recover is that you had that system built so well. Um, but let's let's move into the injury there. So in 1999, and you wrote about this in the book, uh, you went out and there was basically no one else around except for a couple of people. And uh, mm-hmm. you're probably showing off for a girl, weren't you? And <laughs> There was a girl there I, I had eyes for. And... Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new, higher level than ever before? Then please check out thehardybrain.ca 
and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. <laughs> there was a girl there I, I had eyes for, and uh, she did accompany me on that day. Thankfully, she she became a yes. savior of mine on that day. Oh. And I had the accident, and she was on site and helped facilitate um, my extraction with paramedics and a helicopter. And and uh, obviously, it was it was quite frightening, very traumatic, obviously for me, but but for her and the onlookers that were there, but, Absolutely. Um, now walk us through basically what occurred with, with this, with this crash or injury, what, what went, went through, through your mind and, and, sure. uh, the, the trauma that occurred around it. Well, it was, it was a great, it was a, it was a beautiful afternoon, late May day in 1999. And I was testing new equipment. I had a new motorcycle that was recently, recently built, but I was using uh, bad gas, <laughs> bad fuel in the motorcycle. So the fuel wasn't, wasn't fresh or optimal and it was causing some misfires or malfunctions in the machine. And, and the machine happened to malfunction right at the most critical part of a very large jump, uh, which the physics of, of a jump is that you need maximum momentum at the transition of a launch ramp because it compresses the suspension and rebounds and helps carry you over the land obstacle. And right. instead of having maximum power, the engine seized or misfired. And so that, that created a hesitation in the momentum and essentially flung me head first over the handlebars, 80 feet through the air. And there was enough time for me to forethink, uh, I don't want to land on my feet from this height because I'm most likely going to break my femur, the large bone in the leg. Yes. Um, it just, there's too much impact. That's way too high. And so somehow instinctively I, I rotated wanting to roll out of, out of the impact. And instead uh, I impacted the ground head first, like a lawn dart and compressed my chin into my chest. Whoa. And I remember the sound my neck made. It was, um, it was very loud. It sounded like snapping celery, like a wet crunching gunshot. It reverberated through my mind as I, flailed down the backside of the the land obstacle and um i came to rest on my right side just the dust settled and my body was completely motionless um it's as easy as flipping the light switch off on the wall all electrochemical impulses to the body shut off my body went dark Barely a breath because my diaphragm wasn't um, contracting, expanding for breath. So that's in the olden days. That's how people succumb to a spinal cord injury. They they suffocate under gravity, under their body's own weight. Right. Because I, I was unable to inhale, and so I think it's my scalenes in my neck that <laughs> was allowing me to get a little bit of breath in my body until the paramedics arrived on scene. 
and somehow instinctively I instructed them not to remove my helmet. I could sense that it was so unstable that if they tried to tug on my skull, it would detach from my body. And so I gave these little instructions. I knew that my neck was broken. They stabilized me and rushed me into hospital where it became very chaotic. And my last memory was of them tugging on my helmet to rush me into surgery. Wow. And I, I awoke a few days later to the grim prognosis that I was a complete quadriplegic. I was intubated on a ventilator, no movement from the chin down. Horrific reality. But that wasn't the, the most profound moment. A secondary complication to high-level spinal cord injury is pneumonia. Okay. My body's inability to clear the fluids from my chest cavity, from my lungs. They began to fill with fluid. And typically there's a respiratory nurse that comes in and uses a suction device similar to the one you see in the dentist's office. Okay. They cram this thing down the ventilator, down your trachea, into your chest cavity to suction the fluid out. And six days after my injury, this particular morning, I was really struggling to breathe. I had pneumonia. Um, the respiratory therapist was called elsewhere in the hospital and, and left my room, handed the device to my father and that was standing at the bedside. And um, I began to suffocate. Hmm. And I, re I remember that moment vividly. I remember my reality dissolving. The struggle to survive gave way to a peaceful bliss. And I released. And it was, it was a merging, a sense of merging, analogous to a raindrop landing in the ocean. I became instantaneously connected to this vast, infinite expanse of pure potential energy, formless, infinite. Wow. It was a very, very serene, profound, beautiful experience that I use as a beacon in my life today. Now, how did that moment affect you later? Because you wrote about it that basically a year into rehabilitation, you're left alone and you you had a moment where you you could have ended things. And absolutely, that uh, um, you know the reality of just life uh, in a paralyzed body. Um, it was just too much to bear at that young age. I'd had this beautiful, profound experience, um, which was liberating in a sense. Now, you know, the reality of the burden that I had become, my limits, physical limits, were um, at that time uh, overwhelming me. And depression, darkness, I could not see any light 
and I found myself at the edge of a pool, swimming pool. I knew that that was going to be a way for me to to find relief. And I sat at that edge of the pool for a good long while and contemplated my life. And fortunately, I had a, a moment of insight and I pulled back away and found myself in the light again because of my loved ones. Nice. So was that the, the moment of insight then was realizing the, the people around you? In my selfishness, I would have left these people and, um, yes, it was very, um, illuminating to know that it wasn't about me. It was about a greater good. It was about what I could do, um, with my presence on behalf of others that made, um, made me feel purpose in my suffering that I could be of some use um, down the road. So walk us through then what uh, gain of function or recovery did you have in that first year? What, what was sort of the struggles? Um, you mentioned that little things would kind of flicker and turn back on, but uh, to what extent though? And, uh, how was that, uh, sort of something that would overcome the, the depression of, of being debilitated? Well, recovery began in my mind and in a, in a physical, tangible sense, it, it, it was flickers of movement and it, and it began with my sister painting my toes with her nail polish, <laughs> a, a kaleidoscope of color all the colors of the rainbow. So my mind was very dark, but these colors were very bright. And visualization was a technique that I used as an athlete. Right. So I, I, I had this uh, innate sense to, to um, close my eyes and imagine my body. Although I had no formal anatomy education, I could instinctively visualize my skeletal system, my muscular system, my electrified nervous system. And I began to focus on these colors, focus on my toes and bring the color blue up my leg and into my spinal cord and up through my torso and through my neck into my mind. I did the same for my right leg, which was red, my left arm, yellow and green. And, you know, it, it became a, became a tangible target for my mind to imagine moving color through my body and connecting my mind to the muscle and my left blue toe flickered first. That was the, I call it focused willed intention. It was yes. me directing that, um, like the conductor of my musical body. And, uh, essentially I, I, I built, Slowly, one flicker at a time, my left big toe, the twitch of my left leg, the contraction of my left bicep to be able to scratch an itch on my nose to then be able to hug my mother for the first time. Now, these were slow, diligent, intentional movements over very long periods of time, months into months. years. Wow. 
So at that first year year point, I was I had gross motor movement. My fine motor movement was was appalling. I couldn't pick up a spoon. I couldn't hold a pen. Things had to be taped or strapped to my my limbs. So I was very dependent. But I was moving. And to your point, those were the little flickers of hope in my dark world that lit the way. Wow. Now, the the unpleasant subject pops up too is bowel, bladder, and other function down below. Uh, that uh, doesn't work in, in injuries like this, does it? You're absolutely right. They become the bane of one's existence. Something I still am challenged with today, all these years later, I've learned to manage well, but you can imagine the insecurity around it as a 20-year-old man soiling yourself or being completely dependent on another, in my case, my mother, to administer suppository or to catheterize, you know, um, I was completely exposed. And wow. it was because it was after horrific. you left the hospital, it was basically just up to your family to take care of you, wasn't it? That's right. Wow. That's right. Friends, and, family. Yeah. How, how long were you in the hospital for then? Like, what was their rehabilitation for you? Well, all those years ago, I was fortunate to have nearly six months of inpatient uh, treatment. I was able to stay on premise in hospital for that period of time. Today, that is unheard of. We're yeah. at, at weeks, maybe a month or two or three at most, if you're an advocate for yourself. But back then, I, I was very lucky and I, I had no desire to leave the hospital because somehow I knew that in hospital was where I was going to get the best treatment. You know, I was the safest. I was insulated in this in this bubble of of caring of, you know, uh, resources, the things that I needed in order to be safe and healthy. And, and then I was discharged and had another six months of outpatient therapy where I was going to, to physical and occupational therapy, um, five to six days a week. Okay. But I still felt insulated, like in this bubble, the real world hadn't quite hit me. And that's, you know, another aspect of that depression, David, when all that is gone, and you're, you're actually exposed to the real world and inaccessibility, no facilities to continue rehab at that time. Uh, that's a scary place. No kidding. So basically they said, you're at this year mark, whatever function you have is all you're going to be left with and you're on your own is, is that sort of what happened or, or took place? Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's a uh, insurance has, has covered all they're going to cover now. Good luck adapting to life as a quadriplegic. Jeez. <laughs> and here you are 20 years later and you're still making gains. Well, yep. I, I'm, I call it mindful movement. I have to consciously think about movement, but I can walk around my house with a walker or a cane. Um, every step is deliberate. Every movement is intentional. I do use a wheelchair at this point uh, 
to manage my time, energy, and risk, depending on where I'm going and what I'm doing. Um, but for most, uh, most of my, my life, I'm pretty independent, which is what I've worked so hard for. Yeah. But walk us through that process though. Um, you, you had to become the student of your own mind and body and have mastered a set of fundamental tools, which you use and, and share daily. Uh, what are those and and what was the the process to develop this you're you're absolutely correct become a student of your body of your mind that's taking responsibility for it was the first step it my healing wasn't going to occur outside of me i wasn't going to be able to look to a healthcare professional to solve my problem to give me some kind of quick fix this wasn't a orthopedic injury, break a bone, put a cast, expect eight to 12 weeks and it's healed. Right. This is a lifelong uh, endeavor. This is a new type of lifestyle. So that's why I, I've written in the book, you know, become a student of the body. And so learn about anatomy, learn about the nervous system, learn about what occurs naturally to the body in a sedentary state. You know, we degenerate naturally. Entropy occurs, right. aging. Um, understand these things and then start to, you know, pay attention to the things that I can do, you know, learning the laws of leverage and physics. And, you know, I'm very imbalanced muscularly, but I've learned ways to compensate for those, those weaknesses and to lean into my strengths. And so, you know, I've, Somehow I knew that cycling, continuous repetitive motion mm -hmm. of a bicycle, initially in rehab, it was electrified. So I was pl literally plugged into electrodes, <laughs> stimulating muscle contraction, yet cycling round and round for, you know, thousands of pedal revolutions, which allowed me to continuously stream impulses through the injured spinal cord, which essentially is um, what is common knowledge today, neuroplasticity. Right. Which, yes. you know, the, the early thought on that was that the, the nervous system's hardwired and it's not going to repair itself. Well, today we know differently. So with yourself, how did this neuroplasticity start to build? You're, you're on the, the exercise bike repetition after repetition. Uh, did it sort of start to snowball? Um, what was the progression in terms of time and getting function back then with yourself? Sure. It, <laughs> you know, it's that first one to three years nice. where I was just blinders on six days a week. These types of, of exercise routines with high, high repetitions, hours at a time on these electrified yeah. devices where I wrote in the book, you know, one day I was on a machine called the Flexercizer, which is an automated uh, pedaling machine. And as I was turning the dial down, on that machine bike. So, so it ended up, uh, you know, I, I actually forging these pathways on the bicycle, the bicycle and cycling became, uh, a wonderful exercise for me to actually right. make these connections. Yeah, I think that's such an, I was able to pedal yeah. on my own after, <laughs> I mean, at that point, where was I two to three years into recovery? Um, 
and from the stationary bicycle to an upright stationary bicycle like you see in the gym to a tandem bicycle which is a odd bicycle built for two i was able to be strapped to the back of that and um, from just a couple of minutes around the parking lot to miles and multiple miles my mother ended up riding the tandem bicycle with me and we competed in the la marathon which was a 26.2 mile event here in southern california we did that multiple times uh until i i had the bright idea of pedaling across the country like forrest gump <laughs> it was it was a natural progression yes. david it, it just seemed like if I could ride this bike, you know, 20 or 30 miles, why, why wouldn't I just make an adventure out of it and really enjoy that ride and share the process of recovery, share my mindset, share, you know, the possibility. And I made sure to, to make this very clear to newly injured folks or doctors or caregivers that I'm not saying that if you do exactly what I do, that you'll have this type of outcome, but I'll, I can guarantee that if you don't, the the outcome is predictable. That's basically my message. If you don't pursue this type of like active, healthy, full spectrum lifestyle, then it's really easy to prognosticate a future for someone with a highly sedentary lifestyle. I mean, the body shuts down. All systems will slow and cease. And so that's what made my choice very simple. It was very black and white. Like I either do or I do not. Very Yoda. So like I said, this was a a natural progression in my mind to keep cycling at this this level. Again, neuroplasticity, sitting on the back of a tandem bicycle, pedaling for thousands of miles is a great way to reconnect the, the neural pathways. Now, along this way, though, you're also being an advocate for spinal cord injuries. And yeah, you mentioned that uh, the the statement that, yeah, if you don't do this, the, the path is guaranteed you're going to decline more. And uh, I've, uh, with my functional neurology, seem to work with with patients that are either in the okay, I've had something horribly wrong happen to me, brain injury, uh, spinal cord, whatever, or diagnosis of some sort, or the peak performers, the people that want to get better Mm. and just want that extra level of function, whether it's an athlete or, or a high performer. And in between is the regular bell curve of, of kind of the normal population, which is getting sicker and sicker. But what you mentioned there about decline and not doing things really kind of speaks to this population of people going through their daily lives that aren't healthy. And it's not just motivating for people who've had an injury, but I think it really motivates people that, that once again, look at their own life and realize that they're not healthy as well. And what sort of things have you noticed with your advocacy, uh, not just with the spinal cord patients, but with other people that you've talked along the way 
and about health? Well, I think, you know, my adversity is, is very obvious. It's quite extreme. And so, you know, most, most often I am looked at as an inspiration, right? Because of the things I've been able to, to do along my road to, I call it evolution. You know, I, I my goal is to get now, now, do you like that title or no, does, I, it's self does it still kind of... In terms of inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I, I accept that because I know that the things that I do would inspire me, right? If yes. I were on the outside looking in. Um, but more than just inspiration, I want to give people, you know, fundamental tools that they can live by and to sustain that inspiration, to sustain that reverence for life, you know, to live in gratitude, to pay attention as they move through life. That's why I call it, you know, I'm lucky that the way I have to physically move through life is mindfully. And for most of us that don't have to think about movement or think about the, the effect of their choices, like in the moment, um, we end up becoming a zombie in life, you know? And then all of a sudden, years later, we are unfulfilled, unhappy, we're out of shape, we're unhealthy, like, and these are all effects or effects of the cause originally, which is us being oblivious to the magic of life, to the power that we hold. Right. You know, so I, I try to break it down to, okay, I'll inspire you. But now I'm going to give you some other tools so that you can, you too can mindfully move through your experience. And I'm creating a, uh, another book called The Basics, which is how I've kind of framed up my memoir in this methodology of B-A-S-I-C-S is an acronym for just some powerful words that I use as, as mantras as reminders to kind of keep me back on my rails when life happens and we get caught up in the day to day. You know, I've said this before, David, that riding a bicycle across the country with a spinal cord injury is a lot easier than the monotony of everyday life. Right. Yes. <laughs> because at least when I'm going across the country, I have a direction, a very specific goal. I have my roadmaps Everything that I do is intentional to get me closer to that. So I can weather the pain. I can sustain the effort. You know, I can manage that. And that's for a very specific period of time. And so that's much easier to do than, say, everyday monotony without particular goals or, you know, any particular inspiration day to day. So that, that's much harder to manage service. Now, would you say this is taking you far beyond the preparation, the mindset that you would have had as an athlete before the injury? Yeah. I'd be a train yeah. wreck. <laughs> I'd be a complete c catastrophe had I not had this uh, experience. This keeps me completely um, mindful, right? Like I, I've had to organize myself in this way and, and become that student 
without this, I would, I would just be a pinball in life. Whereas wow. now I'm a, I'm a chess player. That is very impactful. That's a, now, that's a, that's a very distinct difference. Yeah. And it's, it's led you to do some really amazing things now as well. Like, uh, your presence and sharing this with other people, it's led you to co-found the Center of Restorative Exercise. So walk us through this. Um, You you started this with your mother after you realized that there really wasn't anything for uh, spinal cord patients to to go to after the regular care has been exhausted. You're absolutely right that we, we, we ourselves had the need. Um, and so it, by recognizing that, uh, filling that gap between traditional rehabilitation insurance subsidized and say gold's gym, there's a chasm there. And for individuals that have special needs, um, we, we saw that we needed to just open a door for people, have unique and specialized equipment, highly trained exercise physiologists and give people the the choice. That was the intention. If they wanted to improve the quality of their life through exercise and education, then here's the door to come through. And that was the genesis of of the center of restorative exercise. We opened that facility in 2011 and we worked it passionately. It was purpose work. Uh, for a decade. And my mother and I saw that we came to a point where we needed to to go another way. And so we sold the business just prior to COVID. Now, you're also a representative for Red Bull's nonprofit charity, Wings for Life Foundation, and a member of the board of directors for the USA and chairman of the Ambassador council so what are these other uh entities you're you're involved with right now but yes i am highly involved in wings for life in spinal cord injury research um i i vowed long ago to use my life experience and my influence and my voice to become part of the solution uh for spinal cord injury we recognize that it is an injury and Essentially, we want to create the opportunity for it to heal like other injuries. And it's really just an underfunded area of science and research. And so um, Wings for Life is a, a international entity that is leading the charge. We are funding world-class science and re- research around the globe in multiple areas of regeneration, remyelination, rehabilitation, robotics. Um, We mandate that all of these areas of study um, disclose their findings, good, bad, or indifferent. The data is shared. We cross-pollinate these projects so that we reduce redundancy and we actually move the needle because we know that for any kind of solution to become efficacious, it's going to come from a combination of these. Yes. And it's more than just walking again. There is a long list of secondary complications that if we can 
improve incrementally. We are dramatically improving the quality of someone's life. I mean, imagine giving a high-level quadriplegic the ability to manipulate his fingers a little bit, to hold a telephone and engage with the world. Imagine the independence of being able to control your bowel and bladder, to reduce spasticity or, or chronic pain <clears throat> syndromes. These are all massive achievements in the pursuit of a cure, which I don't think is the correct term because it's not a disease or ailment. It's an injury. We're aiming to fix or find a solution to. And the great thing about Red Bull is that it's a, it's a global juggernaut. It is a massive um, company. Yes. And the unique distinction about Wings for Life is that Red Bull funds all of our overhead costs and they match dollar for dollar raised. So 100% of everything raised by Wings for Life is matched and goes directly to the projects that we we qualify. So I, I am very passionate about that work. Just two days ago, we had a golf tournament that raised half a million dollars. Red Bull matches it, so that's a million dollars in an evening. And we're on track to do uh, quite a bit more this year. So... We've added 10 new projects to, to the United States uh, Division of Wings for Life, a total of 27 projects, one that includes two, or actually two um, human clinical trials, um, one with Dr. Stripmatter, um, uh, and another that is focusing on the vagus nerve for hand function. So anyways, yes, I'm, I'm deeply involved there. And then another one called Artists for Trauma, which is a more local uh, group who uses the arts as a way to move through traumatic experience on the board there. So again, this is the S in my basics method, which is to serve and share a greater good. So where would people go to find out more information about the, in the charities that you're involved with and then about yourself and, sure. your, and your book? Yeah, you can find tons of information about me and the organizations that I'm involved with at I'mAaronBaker.com or TheRebelliousRecovery.com for the book specifically, which has a, a ton of information in there. And then wingsforlife.com, artistsfortrauma.org, uh, or I'm Aaron Baker, social media. Nice. Excellent. Well, <laughs> I appreciate you sharing sharing the story and uh, and everything that you're doing is very inspirational to, to every single person. And I recommend this book. It is extremely well written. And what a story story you have it really has been turning adversity into adventure and and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you aaron and for everyone listening in tune into the next episode of the hardy brain the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers take care <laughs>